this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're continuing to introduce listeners to some of the content from our new series, The Next Tsunami and Diabetes, Getting Ahead of the Rising Tide, which is targeted at frontline treaters of patients living with type 2 diabetes, obesity, or other metabolic diseases. Unlike The Next Tsunami, which is published through Buzzsprout and distributed through Apple, Spotify, Google, and an array of distributors, Rising Tide is a subscription-only podcast, which means you need to provide identifying information about yourself to access the podcast. The challenge is that Nash Tsunami listeners keep asking me, so how do I get to hear Rising Tide to decide whether I would like to subscribe or not? Some ask because they're physician specialists looking for ways to educate treaters in their communities or institutions. Some listen because they're frontline treaters who stumbled on Rising Tide and like the idea of it. And a third group consists of commercial executives and drug device or diagnostic companies or clinical trial or site management organizations, all of whom view this podcast as a possible place to advertise or sponsor episodes. If you're one of those people, this conversation is for you. This weekend, we are sharing a conversation length cut from each of our previous Rising Tide episodes that you can access without getting into the series. Three of these will be from last year, and one will be from this year's first episode. Our final Vols episode will come from our initial introduction to Jeff Lazarus and the idea of global clinical care pathways in global public health. Last year, our third episode focused on treatment choices that primary care physicians and endocrinologists can make for patients living with type 2 diabetes that will have positive effects on the liver. Rising Tide co-host Dr. Kenneth Cousy and I are joined by hepatologist Naeem Alcori, who you may have heard during his several previous appearances on the podcast, and endocrinologist Scott Isaacs, who was second author on the ACE guidelines and co-authored many other important works in this area and posts frequently on NAFLD and NASH and social media. This conversation comes from that episode. It starts with Naeem sharing the results of the EDICT study, a groundbreaker in which Naeem participated that proved that a more aggressive approach to combination diabetes therapy using metabolically-based agents had a beneficial effect on diabetes and on the liver. From there, we go on to discuss barriers for primary care and endocrinology and looking for fatty liver disease. And, as I note, a fascinating paradox is because frontline treaters fear winding up having to treat patients with cirrhosis. They often fail to treat them earlier phases, so they progress to cirrhosis over time precisely due to lack of earlier proper treatment. If you like this conversation, listen after the content portion ends. I will discuss how you can subscribe free of charge to the Rising Tide series. The conversation itself covers some territory we've never discussed on Nash Tsunami and places other content in a different context. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, enroll in the Rising Tide series and join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about drug choices that doctors can make, even frontline, when treating patients with type 2 diabetes or obesity, and how to be sensitive when doing so to the idea that, as Zobear pointed out in the last episode, it makes sense to assume really that everybody has fatty liver disease because the vast majority will, and that therefore we want to be sensitive to liver in all patients into the idea that for a significant number that will tip over into fibrosis with the potential for some really bad downstream sequelae, including cirrhosis, HCC transplant mortality. So on Surfing the National Tsunami a while back, we did an episode on this subject, and Naeem was our guest on that. So I would love to start there again, Naeem, and to talk a little bit about the EDICT study. Please take about five or seven minutes and walk folks through the study and what was done and what we've learned. The study's now been going on for years, and what we've learned over time and of what interest that might be to an audience that treats frontline for diabetes, obesity. Your floor, my friend. Naeem Alkuri. Yes, so thank you again for having me. It's really an honor to be with the two most prominent 
endocrinologist that covers fatty liver disease. So really nice to have you guys and thank you for all you do to educate other endocrinologists and primary care physicians on the importance of NAFLD NASH in the diabetes population. Roger, we talked about this in our study in San Antonio when we looked at middle-aged adults that were offered to be evaluated for fatty liver disease. We found that in patients with type 2 diabetes, 70% had evidence of fatty liver on MRI PDFF and then on biopsy, 35% had NASH. So not only fatty liver disease is more common in diabetes, but the aggressive form of NASH is more common. So the EDIC study was done before my time. This was started by the Ralph DiForonzo group in San Antonio, where they randomized patients to receive standard diabetes care, at least at the time, which was, you know, you start with metformin and then you go to a sulfonylurea glipizide. And then after that, you go to insulin versus what they call triple combination therapy. So from the beginning, you start metformin, 1000 milligrams, and then you do also pioglitazone plus exenatide. So this was the triple combination therapy. The initial study was for three years and they showed superior outcomes in terms of diabetes control and the combination therapy. But then they did an extension study that added another three years. So in total, it was a six-year study and they followed 68 patients. They compared standard of care, so sequential therapy, if you want to call it that, versus combination therapy. I got involved toward the end of the study, but you know, obviously I'm interested in liver outcomes. And at the time, they also acquired the fiber scan machine. So we decided that at the end of the six years, let's do an evaluation of liver outcomes, mainly focusing on fatty liver disease. So based on the fiber scan using the CAP score, more than 270 to identify the presence of significant steatosis S2, S3, we found that in the standard of care sequential therapy, there was evidence of fatty liver disease in 69% compared to only 31% when you look at the combination therapy. So definitely lower prevalence of NAFLD with triple combination therapy after six years of treatment. When we looked at the presence of significant liver stiffness more than 8 kPa, we found that in the standard of care, it was 26% prevalence of significant fibrosis versus only 7% with the triple combination therapy. We also looked at MRI PDFF in a subset of patients and we found that in terms of the percentage of fat, it was around 12.5% in the standard of care versus 8.5% with the triple combination therapy. Combination therapy was also associated with further decline in AST, ALT, and APRI, AST to platelet ratio index. There was also better control of A1C, if I remember correctly, at the end of the study, the A1C in standard of care was 6.8% versus 6% with the triple combination. So this is a quick summary of this um, extension of uh, the edict and the liver outcomes. In my mind, when I think about diabetes medicines, and I would love to hear from Scott and Ken, I divide them into three categories. We have the neutral ones that are maybe good diabetes drugs, but they're not going to improve your NASH or fibrosis like metformin. We have bad ones like sulfonylurea and insulin that can make you actually have worsening of fatty liver disease. And then we have good ones. And uh, Ken can tell us all about pioglitazone. That's his baby. Uh, But we've known that pioglitazone is good for fatty liver disease, NASH, even potentially fibrosis improvement. The issue has been the weight gain and other issues related to pioglitazone. But now we have the new diabetes medications like SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 agonist, GLP-1 GIP agonist that are showing very promising results. Naeem, first of all, thanks for that fantastic summary. 
first question to Scott and to Ken, I guess, would be generally everything I've always been taught is people start with monotherapy. And I've thought of metformin monotherapy as being the general first line for people with patients with type 2 diabetes. How big a mental leap or challenge do you think it is to go to doing, taking this kind of approach where you start with more than one agent as monotherapy because you're thinking a little more holistically about the problem or for whatever other reason? Ken Kusi. I'll comment first because I have a little advantage over Scott that I worked for 14 years with Ralph DeFranco and we had been discussing the study design and the development of this study when I was still there. So the idea is that therapies that improve insulin sensitivity uh, or that promote um, and that promote insulin secretion enhancement like GLP-1s and may promote weight loss would would be beneficial. The reason why they use exenatide is because this study was, that was the first GLP-1 available. But of course, it's not as effective as the newer ones. The other idea from the rationale of this is to go against what at least at the time was a stepwise kind of slow motion of Approach. This started about 10 years ago. The first publication was in November 2014, but this has been in the making from 2008, 2009. So at the time, the thought was, okay, first we get metformin, you come, once you fail, we'll give you a sulfonylurea that doesn't do anything other than short-term improvements, insulin secretion and elevated cell function. And then it, this led to a lot of complacency and A1Cs that were always high. And the thinking is that if you gave them an aggressive treatment that improved insulin sensitivity early on. And at this point, we didn't know much. We had just published our paper with pyoglitazone and the liver, but we know much more now that if you gave them all at the beginning, you would be able to prevent deterioration of beta cell function, keep insulin sensitivity normal and, and be more effective long term. So that is the thinking. It's not what we now we think that we are more uh, aligned with the concept that if your A1C is nine, you know, you can start a couple of agents or that you just started earlier. The only barrier why we are not more aggressive is cost. But how do you see it, Scott? Scott Isaacs. Well, I would agree that cost is a big barrier. Combination therapy for a lot of patients is really the way to go because that monotherapy is just, it's not adequate for many patients to get control. And really, when we're talking about diabetes, I look at it from a couple of different perspectives. We look at glucose control, but we know that glucose control alone is not going to reduce the cardiovascular risk as much as weight control. And so we want to really have that focus on both glucose and weight. When I see a patient that has good blood sugar, a good A1C, but they're still overweight, that's when we talk about adding in more medications, if they're not on a SGLT2, if they're not on a GLP-1, want to add management is really part of diabetes management. It's part of fatty liver management and it's part of cardiovascular risk reduction. So I think combination therapy is really the way to go. And I think it's really appropriate to start most patients on combination therapy, especially with very high blood sugars. I think one of the other things that was a source of resistance in the past was the concern for side effects, starting more than one drug. But these drugs have different side effects. And so when there is a side effect, we typically know which drug is causing which side effect. And we've learned a lot in the last 10, five years, I would say, uh, since these studies were started. So we did not know as endocrinologists how to incorporate the liver. We did not know how bad the epidemic of NASH and fibrosis was. And 
and um, and we and obesity and diabetes have gotten worse in the past 10 years. So now we have newer tools, some good clinical trials. We learn more about these diabetes drugs and we learn more about NASH. Ken, when you say we've learned more, if, if I ask you to tell me three specific things you think we've learned that are important? Well, from the liver angle, and we'll let later Naeem expand on this, we know now in the United States and coincidentally in most countries, seven out of 10 people with type 2 diabetes have a fatty liver. And if you have a fatty liver and you still don't have diabetes, your chances of diabetes double and of cardiovascular disease. So that's a big finding. The second more important finding from a liver perspective is that about 15, 20% have moderate to advanced fibrosis. So this calls for early intervention because we don't have anything for cirrhosis and um, and and the drugs appear to be more effective uh, earlier in the uh, natural history. From a drug perspective, we've learned that pioglitazone improves cardiovascular disease in people with pre-diabetes and di- or like an iris uh, trial and people with diabetes. We know that it has an effect on the liver that's been consistent across a number of clinical trials, at least to improve steatopatitis to some modest exact the, the liver. And we know a lot more about GLP-1 receptor agonists. We had last year the semaglutide trial published in the New England for authors, Dr. Newsom. I, I was able to help as well. It showed that you can improve steatopatitis in half or more of the patients. The effects on fibrosis were more modest, but more important than anything, it slowed the progression of fibrosis, which is really quite important. The other aspects is that we know that we learned in the past five years that they reduce cardiovascular disease and not only semaglutide, but almost like a class effect. They promote weight loss to a significant extent and they help keep the weight off. And then we have to talk about newer agents like dual GLP-1 and GIP agonists like tercipatide that also promote weight loss. So we've learned quite a lot about NASH, which I would love Naeem to expand from his uh, side of the equation as a hepatologist and about the drugs itself. You know, for us, it's been really the underdiagnosis of NAFLD and advanced fibrosis in the diabetes population. This has been the biggest issue that we have been dealing with as hepatologists. So we've done studies when you look at large EMR systems like the Cleveland Clinic and you look at patients with ICD-10 codes for type 2 diabetes and then you see what percentage have a diagnosis of NAFLD. In the real world, we're talking about 5%, which leaves a gap of 65% of patients with type 2 diabetes having NAFLD and at least not being mentioned as a diagnosis. Maybe it's been discussed, but if you're not coding for it, it means that you're not taking it seriously and you're not really doing anything about it that you want to build for. So that's a big deal. And I think, you know, bridging that gap, educating about the fact that not all NAFLD is created equal and that we need to identify the patients with the advanced fibrosis first with things like FIP4 index. This has been a major advancement with the AGA guidelines and the ACE guidelines. This is a great first step. We've had discussions about this, that FIP4 maybe is the simplest way and it's definitely a step forward, but it has several limitations. So we need uh, more advanced tests that are widely available. We always talk about fiber scan, but this last year we also have the uh, enhanced liver fibrosis ELF test uh, make a big impact for us and how to identify high-risk patients and decrease that low positive predictive value of the FIP4 index. Fiber scan is becoming more available. We have other you know, diagnostic tools that hopefully will create the mark 
democracy on how you identify high-risk patients where everyone has access to these and it's not just the hepatologist. One last thing I want to say is that hepatologists, we scare everyone with the word cirrhosis and then primary care doctors don't want to touch these patients. The endocrinologists are feeling a little bit uncomfortable. So I think it's on us to educate more and more about cirrhosis, compensated cirrhosis, what can be managed in primary care endocrine and what should be referred to hepatology. But outside of that, I see NAFLD as a disease for primary care and diabetes specialists. Naeem, it strikes me that there's a paradox in what you just said. If I recall the number correctly, about half of all cirrhosis is diagnosed for the first time in the ED at time of a symptomatic presentation, ascites or or, or variceal bleed or something like that. So if we focused more on liver disease, fatty liver, before it got to cirrhosis, then the things that scare people away would happen less, right? Absolutely. There was a study done in the UK that showed exactly what you said, that patients showing up with cirrhosis complications were never told that they have chronic liver disease. They were never seen in a hepatology or GI clinic. We did a similar study when I was at the Cleveland Clinic where we asked patients coming to be evaluated for liver transplant for NASH cirrhosis if they knew that they had any chronic liver disease before they presented with decompensation, and 68% said no, uh, which means that the first time they were told they have any chronic liver disease was when they presented with ascites, encephalopathy, or variceal bleeding. I deal with this in my clinic all the time. Every week, I have a couple of patients that show up with NASH cirrhosis, and when you give them the diagnosis and the prognostic implications, they always have the same look on their face, and they say, but I do not drink alcohol. We have a lot of education to do, but I think diabetes as a cause for cirrhosis should be ingrained in everyone's mind, including medical students and advanced practice practitioners. But making that connection between diabetes and cirrhosis, we all know it, we all talk about it, but believe me, in the real world, many people are just not aware that diabetes can cause cirrhosis. So Scott, let me ask you a practical question. If the trick is that people fear cirrhosis, then what are the steps we should be taking to educate frontline treaters and endocrinologists that the way to avoid what you fear is to do what you're not doing because you're afraid. That's a terribly paradoxical statement, but I think that's what we're talking about, yeah? How do we get people more comfortable with the idea that by stepping into fatty liver early, you avoid exactly what you didn't want to see in the first place? Well, that's a really good point, and people do fear cirrhosis. People fear liver disease. When they find out, when they just hear the diagnosis of liver disease, a lot of times that in and of itself is motivated. But because we have no medications that are officially approved to treat NAFLD or NASH. I think there's a lot of endocrinologists and primary care doctors feel like there's nothing that can be done, but the truth is there is. And so we still want to have that primary focus on weight loss and on lifestyle change. And when patients just hear that diagnosis of NAFLD or liver disease, a lot of times that can be incredibly motivating. So don't even always have to take it to the point of cirrhosis to get people to change their behaviors. And now back to Roger. I hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you want to subscribe to Rising Tide, simply go to the surfingnash.com homepage, click the Rising Tide link on the top banner. You'll go to a page that offers two ways to subscribe. And whether you choose the one episode or full experience option, you will become a subscriber. And if you want to learn more about sponsorship, just contact me directly at roger.green at surfingnash.com. We'll be back to our traditional Nash Tsunami format next week to discuss pediatric and adolescent NAFLD and Nash with three guests, our friend Naeem Alpuri and two first-timers, Drs. Rohit Kohli and Miriam. Boss. Until then, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye.